All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Isaiah. <clears throat> As we look at part six of our study at the attributes of God, I want to consider Isaiah 33, verse 22. Isaiah 33, verse 22. We've seen this verse quite a few times in our study so far. It says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. And we look today at the provision of God. We talked last time about the plan of God, and we got excited about the plan of God, and the purpose of his plan was redemption, was this last part of Isaiah 33, 22. How in the world he would fulfill his promise of saving us. And today we get a, another wonderful thing to consider. I won't say wonderful message that we'll leave that to the Lord, but a wonderful thing to consider as we look at the provision of God and we study more intensely who Christ Jesus is for the believer, for the elect, for the target of the affection of God. Often when we think of a monarchy such as a king, our first thoughts are not likely to be the provisions or what they will provide for their people. Uh, as we think of what climate change Charlie's getting ready to take hold of over uh, in the UK, and we think of the situation there, we probably, and I've, I've heard podcasts recently, on the wealth of the royal family, what they have. But have you given thought to what his responsibility is? What it is he is to provide for the nation he's been entrusted with by God? You may not agree with him, but he didn't come to power without the privilege and, per and permission, rather, of God himself. So let us consider here this provision of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has a tremendous amount of power, but he's charged with leading and caring for his people. When discussing his plan for his elect people, as was illustrated when we read through Isaiah 35 at the beginning of the study, and if you don't recall Isaiah 35, it is that chapter that speaks of the highway of holiness. I would encourage you to go through and read that tonight. You just got homework again. But when we went through this, we talked about the Lord Jesus being given over as our required atonement. When we went from Isaiah 33 to 35, we talked about the, the parched land, the dry land, the desert, the scorched earth, essentially. And how does it go from Isaiah 33? to Isaiah 35 and the promises of new birth, the promises of luscious leaves, the promises of new life that we see throughout that chapter. How do we get there? And we introduced Isaiah 33, 22 as that transitional verse because he's in control of all things. He's the judge, the lawgiver, the king, and he will save us. He will bring it to fruition. He has a plan that we discussed last time. Let us now consider his provision what it is that he has purposed for his people, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, of course, way more than just a provision. He is a full provision. Abraham, a friend of God's, trusted to his provisions and eagerly looked to the fulfillment of his promises. As we see in John 8, verse 56 through 58, Jesus said and wrote, or, or was written of what he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. I wonder when the world asks if Jesus has seen you. I wonder what the answer will be. He had to, if you were born again. He had to see you. He had to write you down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the very world. It'd be a good thing if he did see you. Your life depends upon it. 
Our Lord Jesus added it to his name in the Gospel of John, if you want to turn there, and this is where we're going to find 10 great I am statements depicting how he is our full provision. Everything's coming out of John, so if you want to turn there, uh, I assure you, you won't have very far to go for the remainder of the sermon. And I'll, I'll go ahead and say it now. Forgive me. I do have a new Bible. I know Marcia's watching like a hawk to see if the pages will stick. They will. I spent some time yesterday rubbing the pages like this to make sure they wouldn't, but they, they most assuredly will. Uh, but bigger font now, so I should be able to read it a little bit better. The very first thing that we see here of the, of the 10 I am statements that we're going to consider in 40 minutes or more, the bread of life. Jesus says of himself that he is the bread of life. John 6, verse 32 through 35, uh, he say, says unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said he unto them, and then said they unto him rather, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Why is it that Jesus is the living bread? This is essentially what they're wrestling with. You're all-powerful, almighty. It's the same thing Simon Peter is struggling with in our recent study in the afternoon. Why would you have to die? You are the greatest of all. Like, Why would there ever be a reason you would need to die? That you would need to perish? It's essentially what these new translators say. Why would we need the blood? Why would we even need to talk about it? How is that important? Your soul rests on the blood of the Lamb. It's only restored by the blood of the Lamb. There is no other way to the Father but by the Son. It's pretty important. Why else would Satan want to remove it? Why is it that Jesus is the living bread? He, he was the sacrifice for our sins in the most important sermon topic of even Paul. He writes in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the most important thing for you to hear. The most important thing for you to know that the Son of God himself came to this world being 100% man and 100% God, and he went to the cross so that the elect could live. And he was, by the way, successful. Pronounced it himself, it is finished. Christ and him crucified, the redemption wrought out by him with all the precious benefits of redemption, and I'm going to list a few. Pardon of sin, that's a definite benefit. Though we are guilty, we have pardon of sin. Now, this doesn't mean you'll never sin. This means that the sin that would have led to your eternal dying has been pardoned. It means that the debt that comes from sin, which is most assuredly death, as we've looked at in this study, has been pardoned. Acceptance with God, apart from Jesus, we are unequal. We cannot be accepted by God. We will not be accepted by God. If he looks upon us and sees anything but his own son, you will be rejected. You will not see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again in Christ Jesus. The way of the throne of grace. This is a benefit of his crucifixion. Because there's only one way. To have this door opened, we'll come back to the door in a minute, to have access granted by God the Father through God the Son is tremendous. The promises of the covenant, the eternal life 
Though we've deserved and earned eternal death for the wages of sin, our death, through Christ Jesus, through this cross, we have eternal life. The sure mercies of David, the very thing that's been longed for since the fall of man, longed for but never attained. And in some cases, rebellion so steep, so intense, it's not longed for until it is gone. Think of the, the rich man. All he could long for was a drop of water to cool his tongue. All he could long for was just a, a momentary release from the intense suffering he was experiencing. He somehow was smart enough to know he'd never be removed. That kind of defeats the purgatory idea. He must be in hell. That great gulf that lies between, it's not inhabited. There's heaven, there's hell. A great gulf is empty. There's no purgatory. The flesh and blood of the Son of Man denote the Redeemer in the nature of man. The redeemed are purchased by the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. He is the bread of life. He is the meat and drink to our souls. Eating this flesh and drinking this blood mean believing or partaking in Christ as he has depicted. We partake of Christ and his benefits by faith. We again see he's the bread of life as he's mediating upon the cross of Christ, or rather meditating, I don't know how to type, meditating upon the cross of Christ gives life to our repentance, to our love, and to our gratitude as we claim this season specifically. It gives life to it. What are you thankful for if not for the cross? Whatever it is is vain. Whatever it is you give thanks for this season that wasn't made possible by this cross, it won't go with you into eternal life, whether it's eternal living or eternal dying. The cross should be first and foremost on our list of gratitudes. But meditating upon the cross, meditating upon the sacrifice, meditating upon his sinlessness, it gives life to our love. It gives life to our service. It gives life to our passion. gives life to our repentance. It shouldn't be meaningless and empty. Our repentance, our returning unto the Father as a prodigal son and saying it is better to be a servant, better to be a slave than to be cast out. That should have real meaning as we consider the cross. We live by him as our bodies live by food. We live by him as the members by the head, the branches by the root. Because he lives, we shall live also. Secondly, he is the way. He says, I am the way. John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way. And we'll get into I am the truth and I am the life in a moment. But what we see at the end of the colon is no man cometh unto me, or cometh unto the Father rather, but by me. I am the way. There is no other way because no man can get to the Father but by me. There is no other destination but the Father. Well, some might say, well, what about hell? That is the wrath of the Father. You are headed towards the Father, beloved friend. Lost or saved today, you're headed to him. Every second, every heartbeat, every breath takes you closer and closer and closer to God. You will meet him in judgment or triumph. Which will it be? It may not feel real to you today. But it's going to be very, very real in the moment. And the hour is near upon us. He is the way. You won't get to triumphant in God 
but by Christ Jesus, you will know judgment for all eternity. You'll know suffering like you've never known before. But listen to the description of this gate according to Matthew, Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, where Jesus says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Any other washings are insignificant and vain. Any other way, and we remain lost. It has to be the way. It has to be Christ Jesus. Thirdly, he proclaims in that same verse, John 14, 6, I am the truth. John 18, verses 37 through 38 says uh, of Pilate, speaking here, Art thou a king then? He's speaking to Christ Jesus. Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate saith unto him a question that is most desperate for us to consider during perilous times. What is truth? It is interesting that in recent years it's become very popular a Satan's marketing campaign to spin this around to everybody has their own truth. What is your truth? What is your truth? Does anybody remember 20 years ago when we didn't have social media? No, I'm not counting MySpace. Does anybody remember that? The greatest use that folks have found for Twitter and Facebook, and the reason they're upset about Twitter now, is because they have their own version of truth that they want to share and proclaim. Why are Christians not so desperate to proclaim the one eternal truth? With a capital T, Christ Jesus. Any truth you desire to go investigate yet this afternoon, it's there. What's it like to be married to sisters? What's it like to believe you're a chair? What's it like to live in the sky? What's it like to live underground? Go look if you desire. The truth is there. Some version of it, some mal-use of the word truth itself. But what about the gospel? There's only one truth. This truth will set you free. Set you free of the burden of all these other heresies, all these other false truths all of these religions and traditions of man. Don't be slave to them any longer. Know the truth. Believe in death, burial, and resurrection. Believe that he came and went and sent a great and powerful comforter. Believe that he had plans for the souls of the elect of God and that he has fulfilled his part in dying on that cross and rising again. What is truth indeed? The cause of Jesus to come to this world was the truth might be lifted up that we might see as proclaimed there in John 3. If he is not truth, then the rest of this verse can be tossed aside as well. If he is not truth, then Timothy 3:16 and 17 aren't true either, that this can't be the inspired word. And we chased this rabbit when we started our study of the Lord's ministry that if this infallible word is indeed fallible, everything begins to crumble. That is the desire of Satan, is it not? Let it burn. I will be worshipped. I will be lifted up. I will be proclaimed. This fallen star had only one plan, and that was for everything else to fall a little bit lower. 
that they would look up to him. What is your desire? To lift up and proclaim? To look up and be healed? And in Jesus' own words there in John 3, verse 11, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen. What is it that they know? What is it that they have seen? Remember the Holy Spirit descending as in the shape of a dove at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ and the voice come from out the clouds, Behold, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Remember that same voice from the same cloud at the transfiguration last week? Hear him. Hear him. Jesus says, We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen. It is better that they hear of Jesus Christ than that they hear of anything else from our lips. We have nothing else worthy of sharing. Jesus says in that same verse, John 14, 6, I am the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me but by, but <laughs> unto the Father but by me. The foundation for which this entire verse stands is that eternal life is on the line. And Jesus is the one true path to it. Eternal life, that is the sure mercies of David. Eternal life, that is the promise made possible. What do we see way back in Genesis 3? They must come to the tree of life. They must partake of the tree of life. It's presented as this is their only hope. This is the only hope for fallen man that has been removed from the garden with a guard set in its place and a spinning, flaming sword protecting its entrance. And that same tree of life exists all the way to the end of the Bible. He is the life. He is what it's all about. The devil's greatest uh, deceit is convincing us that it's about us. And it's not. It's not at all. He didn't save us for our sake. He saved us for his name's sake. He didn't save us with our efforts or with our words or even with our confessions. He did it all. He paid it all, he committed all, and he keeps all. Be thankful. Be eternally thankful. Be most thankful, because you didn't do it. It was a gift, a free gift. Listen to, to the words that he used back there in John 18, 37 and 38 that we read when we were looking at how he's the truth. He, he gives credence to a great purpose, a great purpose that we just saw him discuss with Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration lesson last Sunday. He says, to this end, for this purpose, the fulfillment of this plan, I was born, and for this cause, this purpose, this reason, came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. The reason that he is the cornerstone and the foundation of the church is because he is that truth. He is that light we point to. What does it speak of us? That we are to be a city set upon a hill, a light unto a dark world. He talks about a light being put underneath a bushel. That's the part that we play, is it not? This part. We are the bushel. Bushel, by the way, is also speaking to that thorny, fiery bush that we talked about a couple of years back. It's our sinfulness, our wickedness that constantly is trying to stifle the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel that we've been commissioned to share. Our great burden, as Malachi writes. And we don't fall under the weight of this burden. 
For we are yoked with the Lord Jesus Christ to carry that burden, to deliver that burden, to, to sow with the plow that burden, to water that burden, to look for life and growth. The seeds that we've seen on Wednesday night, the watering that we've seen on Wednesday night, all of these things coming into fruition in what? Christ Jesus, the provision of God. Consider 1 Corinthians verse 15. Again, as we see how he is the life and we understand that this is literally the foundation of the verse, the foundation of the gospel. God the Father is the source. It can come from no other place. But to get to the Father in everlasting life, you must be made equal, as we saw last time, that atonement can only come from Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 53 through 58. This corruptible, Paul says, must put on the must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in the victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He's our strength. I know that this point is about him being the life, but he is our strength. We see here again the antidote. For a weak heart and feeble knees, which is discussed in Isaiah 35 as well, is service, is an exercise of faith. Faith without works is dead, James says. It is literally essential to your walk. If you were preparing to go on a long walk today, you'd drink some water and probably stretch your legs. You're on a long journey. This isn't your home. This is a pilgrimage in a very strange and dark land. You need this precious light that the Lord Jesus Christ made available unto you if you are born again. Because you can't leave this journey. You can't say, I'm out. I'm done. Your most earnest desire is to see him who was risen victorious and in whom you have your victory. Your most earnest desire is that when this journey concludes, you will see him who you love the most, and you will hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I think of the long journey that Tolkien writes about with the Hobbit, in any of the books, really, Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit. And I think of the picture that Tolkien is presenting there, of all the trials and all the dangers and the part I can't wrap my head around, they did it barefoot, sister. <laughs> they did it barefoot. The hobbits don't wear shoes. I think of some of these trials I don't want to go through, some of these things that I struggle with. And the Lord doesn't say, do it barefoot. What did the Lord say to Moses? Remove thou shoes from off thy feet, for you are on holy ground. You have no need of protection any longer, for you have been delivered. You are right now, the reason for rejoicing last Sunday when we went over his plan, if you are born again, you are right now delivered. Now what it says in 1 Corinthians is that the corruptible must put on incorruption and the mortal must put on immortality, but it doesn't say you have to do anything to do it. It just says that has to happen. 
The desire of the born-again believer is to please his master. Do you have a love for the brethren? A desire to see Christ Jesus pleased? Tough questions. Perilous times. Fifthly, he is the resurrection. John 11, verses 25 through 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? He must be the resurrection in order to provide life to the dead. How could he give life to the dead? He had to conquer death. Con death had to be defeated. And death will be the last to perish, but it has most definitely been defeated. It has no hold on you. We talked this morning that you will have persecution, but you will not have second death. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord to you who are saved. You who are born again. You have everlasting life. They can take all you have. They can't take that. They can take all you desire. Laugh at it. Make a mockery of it. They can't take your salvation. They cannot remove your eternal destination, which is the kingdom of heaven, if you have Christ Jesus as your Savior. Before him, before his conquering of death, we were enemies. More than enemies. If we're more than conquerors now, let's consider this for a minute. You were more than enemies. You were full-out rebellions, lovers of darkness rather than lovers of light, deceitful. Mm. There was no end to your deceitfulness. Liars, truce breakers. Uh-oh. Sermons are starting to cross over, aren't they? Your only desire was you, you, you. Go listen to some rap music today. You want a reminder how wicked you were at one time. It doesn't even have to be rap music, rock music, country music. I can't tell you how many country songs I've heard about drinking and lasciviousness. Almost every single one of them, unless it's about the dog, is about alcohol and sex before marriage. Oh, preacher, that's not a big deal in 2022. God didn't change. Why'd we? It's a most desperate big deal. But here, we see something's changed. We see that God was serious when he said, he will save us. He will save us. It means there's got to be a change. It means there's got to be blood for those of us who know the Bible. The everlasting life that is freely given to the saints through change or regeneration, as we've mentioned before, had to be purified or cleansed from the crimson stain of sin that stinks within all of us from birth. Even that soon-to-be one-year-old, just a couple days. Rank sinner. Noxious fumes of guilt pour out of his very soul, out of his, through his pores, through his nose, through his very eyes and ears. And though his mama loves him so much, he's destined for hell without Christ Jesus. You're destined for hell without Christ Jesus. Your grandson... Any who don't know the Lord Jesus will not see the kingdom of heaven. Do you know him? Do you know him? You may not know all these points. You may not know all these facts and all these verses. And that won't matter in comparison. Do you know him?
Do you love him? Do you have a desire to worship him? To put his will before your own? To bow the knee, as we just sang? If you're not doing it here, you won't be there to do it there. If you're not bowing the knee before your traditions, bowing the knee before your desires, bowing the knee before your temptations, bowing the knee before your loved ones, if you're not bowing the knee before Christ Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, before all these other things, you have developed and installed idols in your hearts and lives, and they must come down, or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. You worship that which you know not, and you will have no hope of fully understanding it, for it is lies built upon deceit, built upon more lies. Well, Christ Jesus, our sixth point, is the light of the world. John 8, verses 12 through 18, Jesus speaks again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. I wonder how you read that. Do you read that as he that, walks, that follows after me won't desire darkness? Or won't be able to walk in darkness. But shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto him, Thou, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh. I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. That's two. He is the light of the world. And these things are true, because the great amen, the great true, said so. I know as kids we hate that. Because I said so. But he who wrote time, he who invented day, he who spoke light into existence, he has the ability to say it's true because I said so. And has the right to request for you to be holy because he's holy. And he does that too. He is the light of the world. And he that follow, followeth me shall not walk in darkness. How do you read this? Because you most certainly will still have a desire to walk in darkness. You most certainly will still be tempted to sin. It happens every day. But are you following after him? Because if you're following after him, you won't walk in darkness. The temptation will be there to take the next exit off the highway of holiness. But if you're following him, how's that described? Dr. Luke says at the end of Luke 9 that both hands should be on the plow. And if you've ever driven a plow, you know what happens when you do it with one hand. And these days, kids would probably do it like this. Driving a plow. Crooked lines, crooked rows, bad seating, gets in the way of irrigation. You got a whole mess of trouble coming. I know all that, and I've never, never walked behind a plow, Ernie, if you can believe it or not. Listen, beloved, you find yourself in darkness, understand you're not following after him with two hands, with both feet. You've given him maybe some of you, but you've not given him all of you. The reason I have been on a, on a kick lately coming after the importance of being here for every service is because if you're not, you've got a hand or a limb or a finger or an eye or an ear somewhere else. And if the perilous times are coming that Paul writes of, 
You need to be following after God with everything. Your only hope, whether you're here or not, the hope of anyone in this world, in this life, for all ages, is Christ Jesus. Follow after him, and ye shall not walk in darkness. You'll hear it, you'll smell it, you'll see it, and you'll say, I abstain from all appearances of such things. The temptation will still be there. A longing for it, perhaps, in some of your persons. But ye shall not walk in darkness if ye follow after Christ. In this text, Jesus makes it clear. He is the true, holy, holy, holy witness come from the Father. He's commissioned us to bear witness of the Father through him, which is the gospel. Every light has a source that is tracked back to God, and Christ is ours. Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16, Ye are the light of the world. A city, set, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. This lines up very well, right? Because if the candle's not under a bushel, you're walking in light and not in darkness. You're following after the light, not darkness. Seventhly, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, verses 7 through 10, and we must hurry. It says, Jesus, uh, Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. Oh, praise the Lord for that last part. Not just life, which is way more than we deserve, but life more abundantly. The title is better understood when we remember that he is also the way. He's the door of the sheep, but he's also the way. He's not a turnstile, but rather here when he calls himself the door of the sheep, he speaks of a great gate of security. He talks here uh, uh, later in, in the next section, and a little bit later in John 10, about the hireling. But Jesus isn't threatened by these things that lay outside. He's not even considering these things that lay outside, these wolves that desire to come in in sheep's clothing. He knows his own. He will not be fooled. Let's continue on to that next part. Number eight, he is the good shepherd which takes place in John 10, verses 11 through 18. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. This phrase is laid out differently, but really referenced twice. Once is service, and the other one is sacrificial. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep, but he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. The hireling was looking for the wolf, not watching after the sheep. The hireling was looking for a way to leave or a reason to run. Not Jesus. Because these aren't the hireling sheep. He sees the wolf coming. He leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. Here's that second reference. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of my sheep. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And the first time he said, he giveth his life for the sheep. And here he says, I laid down my life for the sheep. The first is service. He's giving everlasting life to the elect, to the sheep. This one's sacrificial. I laid down my life. I conquer death. I rise after it is finished for the sheep. 
Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. There's that sacrifice again. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This power, as we've referenced before, is authority. He has the ability to. He also has the right to. This commandment have I received of my Father. And there you see the transference of authority. This is the commandment of God the Father to God the Son. He has every authority and every ounce of power over his own life to lay it down or take it up again. He gives his life for the protection of his sheep, unashamedly stands at the right hand of the Father for his sheep, knows his sheep by name, and they know and respond to his voice. He reigns in his sheep and he keeps them from going astray. While the hireling, the stand-in, looks for the wolf, Jesus looks to the sheep. He guides the sheep. That crook, he doesn't have to beat down the wolves. That crook is to pull us out of ditches. That crook is as we're following after the light to keep us on the path. That straight and narrow way. He brings in the remaining lost sheep of his flock. Ninthly, he is the true vine. John 15, verses 1 through 8, Jesus says, I am the true vine, but my, and my father is the husbandman or the gardener. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me. This is the same as follow after me. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide, abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will. And it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples." There's a verse that maybe we pass up in there, that very last one. Herein is my Father glorified. This is how God the Father is glorified, that ye bear much fruit. Why should you serve? Why should you share the gospel? Why should you take up your cross and follow after him? Because it glorifies God. It glorifies God. And it says before the end of this sentence, before the end of this verse, so shall ye be my disciples. You aren't his disciples if you're not doing this. You're not likely saved at all. If your desire is on you, you're looking for the wolf. You're like a hireling. It's spoken about in other places in the New Testament of a great fear, looking about, waiting to be devoured by that roaring lion. Not if you're kept. Not if you're following after him. You shall not walk in darkness. Not if you're abiding in him, you shall have much fruit. But apart from him, you can do nothing. This is Christ's own words. Ye can do nothing. No man has two heads. He'll love one or hate the other. And no vine has two roots. You're not planted twice. Listen, beloved. He is your root. If you are born again, you are his branch. What mercy of God, the husbandman or the gardener, who saw fit to graft us onto this olive tree by the cleansing work of the sun, something we weren't going to be doing ourselves. The final point to consider is that Jesus Christ is the first and the last. We see this in Revelation 1, verses 17 through 18. 
John, writing, says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. This lines up so well with the transfiguration, because we just drew some similarities to this when we were talking about how the three of them, after the voice of God the Father from the cloud spoke, fell doesn't say as if dead, but they fell to their faces, their faces planted in the dirt. And the Lord came and gave them comfort. This is he. This is the Messiah. Here we have him at the end of things in a revelation unto the apostle John. And the same promises are spoken of again. We see them all here. Let me recap them real quickly. In this text, we see all of these titles, the bread and life, in that from him John once more was quickened and sustained the way the truth the life and that all started with him and finishes with him the door to the sheep prophetic truths found fulfillment in his works he's the light of the world still is even here at the end of time he is now alive forevermore now we see resurrection and death conquered he's the good shepherd at the door stands with keys of hell and death guarding the gate that great door once more and he we see him again as the true vine he comforts dear John with the words, fear not. You know, we, we, we may hear those words and think he says these words so often. And John probably heard these words and thought, oh, he said those words so often. When I clung to his bosom, when I and the other members walked with him, when we saw him facing great temptation and great fear, when we were in great doubt, when we were ready to flee, when we were ready to go around Samaria, he says, fear not. Fear not. John's hearing not only familiar words, but a familiar voice. The great original comforter himself, the great everlasting life, this great ten things that we just listed, he is here. He is here in this terrifying vision. He is here with these terrifying words that I am to take back. And he says, fear not. By these words we can accomplish all things in his name. Without them ye can do nothing. To his elect Jesus is revealed to be Lord, Savior, and Friend. John 15 verses 11 through 16. Jesus will be known to the lost as judgment and wrath. And maybe soon. All will know him. Every knee shall bow. Isaiah 45, 23. Romans 14, 11, uh, Philippians 2, 10. Every knee shall bow. We all have a destination before God. Everlasting life or everlasting torment. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you really, really know him? These perilous times, we might indeed be separated. As the Lord speaks to his church in John 16, you'll be scattered. Do ye yet believe? This isn't an original question I'm presenting. This is his question to his church. Do ye now believe? Will you indeed follow after him?